Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, and the church in the culture. Uh, my name is Derek Rishmaui, and I'm joined by two of our cast and crew, Matthew Lee Anderson and Dr. Alistair Roberts. Um, we are taking up the issue today. Uh, fancy. What was that? Fancy Dr. Roberts. Yeah, Fancy Ooh. Dr. Roberts. Uh, should be just a, should just be the name from now on, Fancy Dr. Roberts. Um, FDR. There we go. FDR. A new nickname is born for those of you who would like to email messages to FDR from now on. Um, today, we're going to talk about the church and politics. Uh, in essence, um, have we, you know, it's election season. Uh, our timelines are filled with these things. We've got Trump everywhere, Hillary everywhere, Bernie bros making memes uh, that, that, you know, spice things up and, and the question, well, I'm going to let Alistair set up the deepest question, but in a sense, have we, have we become too obsessed with it? Uh, but, but Alistair, why don't you go further and kind of set this conversation up? Thanks, Derek. Perhaps it might be good to relate this to the work of James Davidson Hunter, who wrote a book about was it five years back to change the world where he talks about the way in which Various Christian groups, the Christian left, the Christian right, and the neo-Anabaptists have all framed their understanding of Christian engagement within society in terms of politics. Politics has been the primary um, mode of their social engagement, the way that they've framed what they do within society. And it's very much shaped, he argues, by grievance, victimhood, atrocity, um, the sense of injury, the sense of being persecuted, or what he calls resentment, or as it's properly pronounced, resentiment. Um, but Derek told me to pronounce it the wrong <laughs> way so that people would know what it was. But Guys, I'm just looking out for you. One of the things that just he argues you. is that there's a failure to distinguish between the public and the political. And I thought it would be interesting to discuss within an election context and season whether the church has become too obsessed with struggling to get its will politically and fail to recognise the broader public duty that it has and a realm of Christian action that isn't clearly political. So this is a long-standing question for me, and I've taken a beating from many people for... Um, writing about it this election cycle in the context of uh, Ted Cruz. Um, I, I have written probably the most critical take on at least distinctively evangelical politics that I've ever said in public. Um, and uh, I didn't do enough in that post to distinguish between the institutions of the religious right and a broader evangelical public. Um, the, 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 the tricky part is, it seems to me, and Alistair, I think this relates to what you said. Um, one, when you talk about the church, who, which church do we mean? Um, who exactly are we talking about and, and how are we describing them? Um, but for, for evangelical politics, particularly, there's a, a vicious feedback loop that exists that somehow has to be broken. And I actually think James Davison Hunter is right in the center of it. 
Um, and the feedback goes loop goes like this. Um, a, a large, a very large, a, a much larger contingent than I wish existed of um, conservative evangelical Christians pursue this, this sort of um, politicization of their religious lives. Um, they, they subordinate um, their religious practices to the end of um, political gain, which means that every election cycle, they get tons of attention from the media. And the media conversation about evangelical politics is framed almost exclusively by them. Whereas those evangelicals and conservative Christians who don't engage in that don't get noticed because they're off talking about other things, even though they may show up at the polls. And that frames that that frames a um, a narrative about what it means to be a conservative evangelical in America. And Hunter has been at the core himself of framing that narrative. So his early book um, where he framed the term culture wars, he actually he actually uh, came up with that term by looking at the fundraising appeals the direct mail fundraising appeals from conservative religious political organizations and progressive organizations and looked at their rhetoric and was like, well, we have a culture war, even though those were the sorts of things that no one was saying in public at the time. And that, that, that generates a kind of narrative itself that creates a feedback loop such that the fundraising for those organizations, the reward structure, the, all the incentives are oriented around continuing that sort of practice. And it, and it, and it allows this narrative to take hold that, that conservative evangelicals are just driven by uh, resentment and grievances. And, and so this on. is why sociology um, is dangerous. So There's a lesson there, kids. <laughs> There's a lesson there. Stay okay. away from it, kids. <laughs> That's right. Can, go, go become a theologian and don't, you know, don't bother or, or with sociology. Become a philosopher, argue about stuff nobody cares about, and, you know, That's make society I... great again by <laughs> not touching it. Okay, continue, Matthew. That's exactly right. No, I, I mean, I, look, I'm, I'm working out my frustrations because I also think, so while that's, that's the careful, nuanced, subtle... Um, reading of, of the situation that I've had and that I've argued for for a decade. The reality is, is that that contingent that does instrumentalize their faith for the purpose of political gain is still here and is still ludicrously large and still very, very influential and uh, more more influential in American political life than they deserve to be. Yeah, there's uh, Colin Hansen had a piece in the Washington Post on uh, a week and a half ago. Well, by the time you're hearing this, maybe two to two and a half weeks ago on the day of the Iowa uh, caucuses. And he's talking about, you know, those evangelicals that you're going to hear about, you know, Iowa caucus evangelicals and just how unrepresentative in many ways that they are of broader, just regular, even conservative evangelicalism. I mean, you trace, you know, the variety of sorts that you will actually find, but because they're not out there making political news all the time, they're not getting any of the airtime. You know, this, it's, just, it's just 
as cheesy as the squeaky wheel gets all the oil, gets all the attention. There's also the other thing that, obviously, and this is kind of like a, I don't know, conservative fallback trope, but I think it's real, is um, there, there are motivated, <coughs> coverage is motivated, right? There are reasons they get the attention. It's not just because they make all the noise or just because they're there, they generate news and quote unquote the media, whatever that means, um, I'm going to invoke the conspiracy, uh, they, they like that. There, there's a certain level where that narrative is great for them and it's great to be pushed. A conflict narrative sells uh, so that you know, narratives of reconciliation or mediation or, like, unless they can be spun as, I'll put it this way, I can't remember if it was Vice or GQ about a week ago, ran a, ran a piece entitled, The Evangelicals Who Hate Trump, right? Now, none of the people in the story actually said, gosh, I hate Trump. But they all did oppose and all were vocally not supportive of him. But you're not going to say, evangelicals who feel tepidly towards Trump or evangelicals who, you know, thoughtfully don't support Trump. Evangelicals who hate Trump, right? The, the cycle itself is aimed at selling via this aggressive narrative. So there's that, that's, I think that's a key element in the feedback loop that, um, frustrates me. I suppose it's easier to get frustrated at because it shifts blame a bit, but um, that's also something that... Sure. So I want to... Go for it. Let me let me just follow up on that, Derek, um, and then we'll kick it over to Alistair to get his take on this. So there, there are two other wrinkles to this. One, um, partly the frustration with the state of evangelical politics is it would be very easy for me and for lots of uh, evangelicals to look at those who are instrumentalizing their faith and to say, not my people, mm -hmm. right? Those are, those are not my type of evangelicals. And so I don't have to claim them yeah, or I don't have to, to sort of be identified with them at all, which is what I think a lot of the institutional evangelicals would like to do um, is just distance themselves and say, you know, this is ridiculous. Um, uh, but but I don't think that that's that's a possible option. And in, and in that way, the the fascinating thing about the evangelical world is the gap between um, it's, a, it's a similar sort of gap that you see in Republican politics right now, a gap between a sort of establishment um, that's trying to be very sophisticated and so on and so forth and um, a laity that just isn't on board with it, right? Or huge swaths of a laity that thinks very differently. And that this cycle, more than any other, we've seen that gap be, be really exposed. Um, the, the, the fact that there are lots of evangelicals supporting Donald Trump just makes it very clear the, the sort of lack of connection between those who are speaking in public for evangelicalism and those who are in the pews. Um, um, and I think we have to just sort of recognize that. And I, well, I mean, like, while I think, while I, this, this yeah. in a lot of ways doesn't surprise me in the sense that if you, you know, and I, I hate Barnabas now, but honestly, 
if you read the Barna polls where it's like, well, you know, 75% of evangelicals think that, you know, Roman Catholics are Muslim or, you know, I don't know, whatever. Like there's, you know, they kind of like, well, they're, they're, you actually do theological tests on what it means to be a Christian corollaries like, you know, well, you know, 50% of people sitting in the pews think reincarnation is a thing. Um, it always feels exaggerated, but there is, the, the gap is, the gap's there. The gap's not surprising. The gap theologically oftentimes is, I mean, it's what pastors are regularly pulling their hair out about, even while they, some of them perpetuate it. That what's interesting is how the election has laid it bare in such a significant, glaring way. Um, rather than just, you know, week to week in a million little minor ways in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the congregation. That's yeah. what's interesting. So it's like, it's, it's in a sense, it's not surprising if you have been paying attention to other clear disconnects. But since, I don't know. So many people don't actually care about theology that it doesn't frustrate them when the thing they do care about politics, when the gap shows up there, it's like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? That is, uh, that's part of what's so, so interesting. I don't know to me, but FDR, what are you thinking? <laughs> I want to get back to the point <laughs> that you made earlier about the antagonistic language, the way that things are framed in terms of hate and these other frameworks that encourage the perception of culture war. And I think there is this perception very much, even within the UK, within churches, people fixate upon a small selection of cases where Christians have felt that their liberties are under attack. So for instance, Asher's Bakery with um, baking a cake for um, a gay wedding, or other cases such as... Um, a woman not allowed to wear a cross at the workplace. These sorts of cases are seen as examples of persecution and they serve as fuel for a sense of often what I think is fairly called paranoia about the degree to which we're besieged, under attack, etc. And then our whole relationship to the society at large tends to be framed by the... Um, exaggerated role that these things play within our imagination as a Christian church. And one of the things that strikes me in all of these debates is that you see these things within other quarters as well. This isn't exclusive to Christians. Other groups feel this way as well. And there yeah. seems to be a more general sense right. of besiegement within our society that politics is the place that we go to, that there's a distrust in the ability of the social fabric to bear our disagreements, a distrust in the power of discourse to be a means of breaking them down to size. So we don't, we know platform people. We argue that certain people should be removed from um, public discourse, close down their accounts, whatever it is. Or we seek to go to law when we could think of some sort of compromise, workaround, accommodation or ad hoc arrangement to allow two people to exist with their contradictory convictions and that distrust I think is something that we need to address why is it that we've lost this faith in non-antagonistic ways of resolving these differences through the more general strength of the social fabric 
Right. So the um, Alistair, those are both very good points. I mean, the fact is, is, particularly in the States, that grievance politics works, quote unquote, um, and has worked, quote unquote, for a long time. Um, the, 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 it's difficult. It's enormously difficult in a predominantly democratic um, approach to politics to generate enough enthusiasm to turn people's sentiments and reasons into actual action, right? You have a democratic deficit. You have people not going out and participating in political life. And one way to overcome that is by whipping up passions of resentment, passions of fear, passions of uh, just anxiety that their world is going to collapse unless they do engage in this form of um, uh, political action. And it's a lot easier to tap into those sorts of sentiments than it is to tap into people's um, vision for a common good, uh, vision for you know a society that is uh, where where sort of things are great. Yeah. Um, so I, I prudence think, I think and the, the common good don't and the way in prudence and the common good don't make good um, bumper stickers. <laughs> But the, the yeah, other, that's right. Other... And, and if you need people to come out and vote, you need you need enthusiasm, right? It's it's which is why in politics, it's not always just pure numbers. In in American politics, if you look at the polls, it's all, not always just pure numbers that wins elections. It's the degree of enthusiasm that people have for their it's candidates that numbers. often will determine it. The, the... Because because they're the people who go out and do the work for their candidate. The other thing is, you know, common good, and this is the kind of big point is that our culture has shifted in the last 50 years. We don't have a common, we don't, we're not agreed on the common good because the common culture is no longer as common as all that. We have pluralized, we have, um, splintered, uh, you know, the, the, there is no general civil religion to appeal to, um, at least not as much as there used to be. Um, and I'm just reminded of that. I mean, I don't know how many times I wrote, I'm, I'm reminded of the intro to Tim Keller's book, the reason for God, where he points out, you know, religious people are anxious and they are, you know, they're looking at the rise of, you know, the secularism and, you know, new atheism, whatever. And they're like, guys, it's growing. And we're, we're, we're like under siege, this or that. And then, he points out the same paranoia is going on on the side of the new atheists and the secular saying, look, guys, religious extremism and hardened belief is growing. And we're, we're look, look at these cases here and all that. And his point was, they're both right. Like both what's happening is, is it's not so much that one is, is uh, overtaking the other is that they are finally that, that kind of mushy middle is getting thinned out. And people's positions and people's, you know, subcultures are, in a sense, um, I'm trying to think of the word, basically like the, the, the elements of the, the, I don't know, the smoothie of American politics, they're separating out and they're becoming clearer. The things that were easily blended up before and kind of all big, one part of big wash, they're not anymore. And so... That's why that's a big part of why grievance politics is is what motivates us because 
a common politics is apparently beyond us because we, we we're so hyper aware of the differences in our small communities. We're yeah, we're we're tribalizing. Uh, so and that that's that's part of the problem. And I don't know that there's an easy or a, even a hard fix for for that. I mean, that was one of the things you know. that struck me about the debates about same-sex marriage, that many Christians, their first instinct was to rush to the issue of religious freedom, whereas there are huge common good issues at stake here. The interests of children, the next generation, the um, bringing together of men and women within society, all these sorts of interests are at, at stake, but yet people instantly went to their partisan, um, the interests of their particular group within society, rather than recognising that marriage exists for the sake of everyone. And when that is damaged or compromised, everyone suffers. And we need to defend everyone from damage to this institution, not just our own particular group, I, from the repercussions of some change. I think, uh, I'm, and I'm just, and I'm just going to defend... Um, American conservatives on this against um, a British misreading of our own internal. Politics. Oh, this wasn't just this um, wasn't just Americans. I'm talking about um, evangelicals in the UK too. Look, all we're saying, well, all we're saying is, is that the BBC, the, the, the BBC d- is a propaganda arm for the Democratic Party. <laughs> we all know it. It's been that way that's for right. years. We're just getting that's it right. on. Re- we're just getting it on. But record. Also, I do, th- I do. I do think that's um, I do think that's very unfair because um, in the debates leading up to, for instance, the Obergefell decision, all of those common good interests were brought to the forefront, right? Yeah, um, those were the arguments that conservatives were putting forward, yeah. and those arguments, for a variety of reasons, didn't catch on, and so the what looked like a rush to protect our own is actually just a, a sort of defensive reaction. I'm referring to an earlier stage uh, that, of the debate, a... particularly in the UK but, prior to okay, the legalization. Maybe, maybe, it, maybe, maybe that's true in the UK, but um, in, in the States... Um, in America... The emphasis on religious freedom... <laughs> uh, was a very late development in the arguments about same-sex marriage. Yeah, a very, very yeah. Late I, I have to say that and one wasn't and as, and that that one. And, when I paid attention more closely you know, years ago, um, that one wasn't as commonly advocated. And I think, I actually think, and here's the funny thing: I think if that sucker had been, well, here's the thing: if we had advocated that earlier, I think we would. That was those are the you're being paranoid arguments. So some people would raise those claims about 10 years ago and they they were the ones who were written off as paranoid. As, no, you need to make common good arguments. Yeah, that's right. So that was that was the irony of our of the American context is how quick the cultural um how quick that movement has metastasized and taken on steam and I think, you know, so much of it internet culture, so much of it on the on the younger end um certain um, shared assumptions about equality and rights and individuality have uh, just taken off and are, are just spreading like wildfire and, and, and 
that the logical conclusions to things are more quickly, I think they're being more quickly applied and drawn out and spread out across all areas than I've seen in, in, uh, in the past in terms of like identity and grievance politics and all the multifarious subcategories of uh, ways to, to have your autonomy transgressed or defended or that's the other thing. That's the other thing that's, that, that is making this all the victim politics. Um, so I don't know, since aggressively worse, but, it, but it, it, Derek, it, sorry. I mean, to Alistair's point, I actually think the, um, the, the reality is, and this is the difficulty of living in a, uh, political environment where, um, power analysis drives our discourse such that, yeah. you know, reasons are reduced to things like, well, no, you're just trying to hold on to your power and you're really uh, engaging in resentment politics yeah. because Alistair, a lot of those common good reasons that are put forward and were put forward were um, interpreted, were deconstructed along the lines of, you know, uh, hetero privilege, you know, heterosexual privilege. I mean, I know, right? I know all um, that. I mean, I put a, forward more than it, as much right, as anyone right. else. But I'm saying that what I noticed sure, in a lot but, of the people I, would, I talked to, their key concern was um, religious freedom, and everything else was yeah. secondary to that. Now, that may yeah. not be what you noticed where you were, but it's certainly what I noticed in many of the contexts I found myself. Let's let's go back. But it doesn't let's matter. Go, because, let's go back though. Um, any of any of the arguments that would be put forward are going to be heard along these lines, and so there's so so. But what that means is that even even legitimate concerns around religious freedom get read as. Um, you know, power ploys and a part of this sort of resentment politics. And I, and I just think like, at what point are we able to make political arguments on the basis of reasons rather than reducing everything to, to power politics, even while acknowledging that that power politics is, is more in play than we, we might want to. Well, here's here's one thing. Let me, let me just go back because we got, we got dragged into an Obergefell talk again. Um, I mean, this is, this is one of those things that's endemic everywhere, right? I mean, when it comes to economic issues or, um, you know, whether or not Obamacare should be supported or whether or not uh, certain economic measures should be supported and so on and so forth, that general reduction of arguments about the common good to the maintenance, maintenance of class and power um, arrangements that is that move is not just present in gay marriage debates and religious freedom debates. That move is everywhere in our our total politics. And so, in 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 many ways, talking about evangelicals' ability to put forward reasons that are, that go beyond kind of just in a sense tribal uh, victim and so on and so politics. It's almost it's it's kind of caught up in a, the broader problem of how Christians and even evangelicals are to kind of just alternatively model and engage in all of our political discourse um, and all of our arguments for for these things, and that's that's 
I don't know. I'm more interested in that question than the specific what we should have done, um, you know, five or ten years ago in Obergefell or whatever. Does that make sense? I don't know. Is that Alistair, Matt? Yeah. One of the things that I think needs to be looked at is the degree to which partisan politics reflects just the way that we're relating to each other in particular ways, especially in the internet culture, that Mm -hmm. one of the things that was striking, for instance, about the Donald Trump phenomenon is that so many people say, I don't know anyone who would vote for Trump. Now, what? how is that? I mean, so many people do vote for him. How is it that you don't know anyone that would? In the same way, so many people who are pronounced liberals do not know anyone who believes in um, creationism, but yet about half the American population does believe in creationism. And same with um, convinced Christians. How many um, convinced liberals do they know in their personal life and have regular interactions Mm. with often what we have is the insulation of various communities from each other and online i find it interesting where you have these intense partisan communities but there's more exposure to the other on one on one level but that level becomes one of fear and paranoia so the existence of these other voices out there you're more aware of them but you're more aware of them precisely as this demonized presence rather than the people who would actually live alongside you that you could relate to in your day-to-day life and since people's private convictions become more public in contexts like facebook and elsewhere it's it creates a sort of intensity of difference and partisan relations that you wouldn't have in the pre-internet age i don't think um where we wouldn't be so intensely aware of the existence of people around us who strongly disagree with our notions those differences would be held in more obscure or private contexts and we'd have other contexts where we could work out just our common life together as a society and when we lose those contexts and the difference between them is blurred we start to be polarized what one thing is i think we i want to say yes and no there's a sense in which in past times we were aware of those differences, but we were aware of them in, you know, smaller and broader contexts. You knew Joe up the street was a Democrat, but you also knew that Joe up the street was also, he could, he could barbecue pretty well. And you liked the way you cooked burgers because your kids played together and you'd have neighborhood barbecues and you would argue politics over a beer or a non-alcoholic diet Coke for our Baptist friends. Uh, you know, and that was kind of the context in which you, um, that was part of the context in which you knew people disagreed with you strongly. Uh, the, I, I don't know. And I think part of it is we've lost neighborliness and we've gained f- Facebook friendliness. Like I'm, con- I'm connected to, you know, hundreds, you know, thousands of people. And I see their deeply held convictions, but I don't know what their house looks like. And I'm not sure exactly what their normal sense of humor, because internet sense of humor is a little different than normal sense of humor. And I, you know, I don't, there's just, I think that is part of it. We've become farther and closer at the same time. And that is, I think a contributing factor to what you're, you're talking about. And so, um, we, yeah, we've, we've increased and lost 
distance in a different way. So that that's that's part of my hunch about it. Yeah, I think that's Derek. Do you have a normal sense of humor, or um, <laughs> is your sense of humor only an internet sense of humor? I don't know. At this point, um, the internet has so infected all of my life that I just speak in tweets at home. I just <laughs> that's that's just all that happens. 140 character bursts, and that's it. <laughs> or retweeting other humorous remarks of friends and relatives. Yeah, somebody says something, I'm like, oh, let me retweet that. Can't. Dang it. Yes, um, I think you'll... Sometime we should do a show where we only speak in 140 characters. <laughs> hey, you know, we read a book of Proverbs that way. The loss of this broader context is really crucial. And one of the things I've thought about online more generally is the loss of differentiation and the sense of the differences that humanize people. Um... So there are certain differences that prevent us from just reacting to people. Um, things like the difference of time and space. Um, but there's also differences that disappear online, such as the differences between people and their social and personal location or their status. You don't see older people online as older people. They're just another profile. In the same way you don't have pastors just tend to be another voice online. Um, you don't have the distinction between public and private spaces. You don't have a clear sense of people who live in poverty online. I mean, how many people do you know um, who experience extreme poverty? How can you see that online? Is it visible? And when you lose these senses of people's locatedness within relationships, within social contexts, mm -hmm. within their bodies and the experience of their bodies, for instance, do you see disability online? In all of these ways, people become invisible to us and we start to think purely in terms of ideologies and people as ciphers for the ideologies that they hold. And it makes it very difficult to relate to people in a humanising way that recognises that they are far more than their I the ideologies that they hold, often in very inconsistent and, um, and confused ways. We all have inconsistencies in the way we hold our opinions. That okay. That point. That point is one of those things that um, I see it everywhere. Uh, we we treat we treat people, and it's it's weird because we know they're not. We know that we're not. But we treat people as like perfect, perfectly rationally consistent um, operators. We're like we're like economists, right? Economists who 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 think well, rational actor theory being what it is, they should all prefer X. But why do they prefer Y? Well, because they're humans, and X is weird, and they're inconsistent. And in the same way, oftentimes, we'll... we'll, we'll and you see these think pieces, right? Where somebody will write a think piece, well, so-and-so believes X, so they should naturally believe Y. And they do. And Y is why they believe X, is why they do X. And it's like, no, that that's that's like maybe half of why some of them do it. We're, we're far more inconsistent. We're, we're not reducible to our opinions. Um, we, we hold things in tension. And, we, you know, we, so that's, yeah, that, that's such an important point that we miss is people are interesting differentiated jumbles. And, and, and you cannot be, you, in a sense, sometimes you have to force the logical point, but you can't reduce the person to the logical, a uh, set of logical corollaries to be plugged in. That's not the sum total of who they are. Um, 
And this is why, guys, we need to listen to each other's stories. Boom. Gotcha, <laughs> Alistair. Um, <laughs> I am. I, um, so I, I, I think all of that's right. Um, I think one of the interesting things in the context of politics is a political order that itself consumes all other aspects of life will require the same from its citizens, citizenry. So in the states where we have an expansive government that does not demonstrate respect to other spheres of life, um, that the corollary of that and is, is a citizenry for whom everything is reduced to their political ideologies. And those two work in uh, tandem and it's a chicken and the egg problem. We will have the government that we deserve and the government makes us into the citizens that it needs for its um, expansive work to go on, um, even while maintaining, weirdly, a sort of bitterly divided internal culture. And so in that sense, I think, in the States particularly, um, our government is actually representative uh, of who we are in a way that shouldn't allow us to um, distance ourselves or excuse ourselves from the problems by saying, well, that's just Washington, D.C., and that's what happens over there. Uh, I think it's a it's a problem that we're all entangled in. Matt, and um, I, I, I think, I mean, to make this sort of timely, I actually think that um, one practice of resistance that Christians can and should engage in is untethering themselves from political discourse at times when it is at its at its peak, and um, not 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 necessarily political action, right? But political discourse, not not giving ourselves over to the consumptive politics that we currently have um, entirely, but 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 engaging in other forms of speech, and and you know. Whatever people make of practices like Lent or the church calendar, certain seasons um, are excellent times to practice those sorts of things. I was struck by this a couple of years ago when um, the in the states, the oral arguments uh, before the Supreme Court for Windsor, um, a huge marriage case, fell during Holy Week. And, um, you know, it was fascinating to see online um, most Christians engage in arguments about marriage in a political context rather than engaging in reflection about the movement and structure of Holy Week. And so I, I, I think that we have to think deeply about the ways in which our own internal formation as Christians and our own practices are allowing us to resist the kind of consumptive politics that we that we currently have. Well, in addition to that point, a, I think another form of resistance could be a return to the primacy of the local, because so, so often the differences that yeah. we have are primarily ideological, and they play out in these the vast planes of politics as the winds of ideology blow this way and that. But when you actually get down to the nitty gritty, um, often you can form significant co-belligerency with various groups. So when we're talking about religious freedoms... There are many things that we can do with Muslims in the same way if we're dealing with situations within our local community, we can join with LGBT groups to help vulnerable homeless teens. Or if we're dealing with um, with feminism, 
you don't have to deal with feminism just as an ideology. You can deal with it in actually helping women who come from abused and battered contexts. And Christians can be fully involved in these things and form very significant partnerships with people from the other side of the political aisle and the ideological differences that divide us. But these differences will primarily be overcome on a local level. If we're dealing with purely in terms of ideology, we'll just be bashing heads. But I think if we form these sorts of partnerships, we can actually maybe work some way to breaking down the ideological barriers that divide us from our neighbours. I will just put in a word and say these are these are excellent suggestions, but they are, again, partial ones. Um, and so, the, 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 you know, for those who choose to withdraw for a time, Jesus withdrew, you know, to the desert in order to come back in uh, for ministry in the world. Uh, you know, we, we, we engage at the local um, in order to, well, the local is worth it on its own. But again, these things are, these things are partial strategies and, and the total, it can't, it can't devolve into a total withdrawal The the, the monastic, the badly monastic and, and I don't want to, sorry, Jake, uh, the, 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 the deformed monastic in, impulse of withdrawal and retreat. Um, uh, the, because there still is, there is the constant call, the prophetic call to stand as a watchman. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm reading Ezekiel right now, right? And Ezekiel is, man, talk about lone prophet in a dark time uh, where, you know, the idols are being brought into the temple and the court space, the temple spaces. And, and, um, and it is still called to proclaim to, to Israel um, the truth of God, the, the witness of God, the love of God, the holiness of of God. Um, we're not a covenant nation, you know, but there is still some call to stand in the gap. And so, um, and then whether that's in the, the shared life of our communities, uh, and, and our, the shared life of our communities take place in public spaces, right? The church up the street, uh, is up the street from the Starbucks and up the street from, you know, city hall. Um, so we 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 withdraw, we retreat. We don't retreat. We withdraw. We 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 do all that to participate in the world differently, not to withdraw from the world entirely. Um, and that is something that I think um, I still don't have a full handle on how to do. Well, although I would um, say on that that one point that there is a danger of presuming that every Christian in the church has the same calling. Most Christians in the church will be yeah. best off. Most of us, I think, would be best off just taking a few steps back from politics and doing other things instead. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't people within the church who do have that as their calling and who should be actively and um, assertively involved within that sphere of life. But the idea that just because there is something that is a calling for Christians more generally, that every single member of the body has to be throwing their weight into that at certain points, I don't think that's sure. the case. But but we will we'll end on this note. If you are one of our listeners, presumably you are of such an intellectual and moral caliber that you probably are called to engage in these things. Um, guys, uh, <laughs> shameless pandering. Um, 
We do have to wrap up. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the the show and benefited from the conversation. I know I have. Um, if you have, feel free to share the, the show around, tweet it, Facebook it, email it to your grandmother. Um, also, we will have a couple of links in the show notes at mereorthodoxy.com and a link to our Patreon account. Um, we need money so that this doesn't cost Matt money again. The boy needs food. And so um, if you could find it in your hearts and your possible bank accounts to support what we do, that'd be fantastic. Otherwise, feel free to keep listening. And uh, th thanks for listening this week. Goodbye.